Tonight's Bible reading is from Ecclesiastes 12, 1 to 14. So if you have your Bible, I'll give you a minute to find that, or you can follow along on the screen. Ecclesiastes 12, 1 to 14. Remember your Creator in the days of your youth, before the days of trouble come and the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them, before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark and the clouds return after the rain. When the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men stoop, when the grinders cease because they are few and those looking through the windows grow dim, when the doors to the streets are closed and the sound of grinding fades, when people rise up at the sound of birds, but all their songs grow faint. When people are afraid of heights and of dangers in the streets, when the almond tree blossoms and the grasshopper drags itself along and desire no longer is stirred, then people go to their eternal home and mourners go about the streets. Remember him before the silver cord is severed and the golden bowl is broken, before the pitcher is shattered at the spring and the wheel broken at the well, and the dust returns to the ground it came from, and the spirit returns to who gave it. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, everything is meaningless. Not only was the teacher wise, but he also imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. The words of the wise are like goads, they're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails, given by one shepherd. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. Of making many books there is no end, and much study wearies the body. Now all has been heard, here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. This is the word of the Lord. Well, let me add my welcome to Oscars. My name's Rod. If you're visiting, it's great to have you with us, uh, especially for this important service with Harley being baptised later. Um, we've been uh, looking, just for context for a moment, we've been looking through the book of Job uh, throughout this term. We've just come to the end of that last week. Um, but because we've been in the Old Testament, we've been thinking about wisdom literature. I thought as in this one-off uh, opportunity tonight, I'd um, look at this passage from Ecclesiastes, more of God's wisdom for us, but also brings into sharp focus um, decisions we should make in our youth, as we see Harley has made tonight. Um, it's a fairly confronting passage, uh, talking about uh, death and so on, but I think it helps bring a lot of things into focus for us, so I pray that it will be fruitful tonight. So please pray with me now um, as we come to God's Word that He might speak to us clearly from it. Let's pray. Now, Heavenly Father, we do thank You that You are a speaking God, that You have revealed Yourself to us clearly in your word and ultimately through the person of your son the lord jesus and we ask this evening that you might uh, challenge us afresh that we might hear your voice clearly in your word that you might be at work in us to challenge us uh, to comfort us where needed that you might remind us of your plans for this world and for our lives uh, help us to respond to you we ask this in christ's name amen well, generally speaking, Australians avoid talking about death, and so many avoid uh, confronting the change in priorities that contemplating it might actually bring. Despite around 150,000 Australians dying every year, death is not a comfortable subject, 
And even as I bring it up now, perhaps you're feeling that. And so we tend to skirt around it most of the time unless we're really forced to face it head on uh, through perhaps the death of a loved one or their impending death. And I think the result is we feel a bit uncertain when those moments arrive, uh, when we're confronted by friends or family in that position. I think sometimes too we're fascinated as a result by uh, the last words of a person, uh, what they might say. I think because we hope to find some clue, some hidden truth um, as we contemplate life and death, this subject that we've avoided perhaps, but now we're facing. And so as this person crosses over, Uh, from life to death, we're confronted with what they might say, whether there might be insight for ourselves. Of course, sometimes those words are not overly helpful. Uh, The famous Irish playwright and novelist Oscar Wilde, who was known for his witty dialogues, uh, said as he died, this wallpaper is appalling, one of us must go. Uh, You don't get a lot from that. Um, But if final words are not flippant like Oscar Wilde, then they're just words of resignation. So famously, Ned Kelly apparently said as he was being executed in 1880, I suppose that it had to come to this. Such is life. Or worse still, there's this vain desire uh, to hold on to life like Queen Elizabeth I, not the recently departed second, Queen Elizabeth I, who said to have grabbed her doctor as she was uh, dying, lay dying in her bed and said to him, half of the British Empire for another six months of life. And he wasn't able to give her another six minutes, as it turned out. The Bible doesn't skirt around the issue. Uh, It knows no such uh, problem in facing it directly. And so rather than uh, avoiding the subject, it addresses it openly, boldly. And the reason it does it, especially as we'll see in this passage tonight, is that it wants us to, God wants us to consider the issue while we have time to consider it, before it's too late. God's concern is that we might respond to him as a result and live life in light of eternity. Because if we did so, that would change all of our choices in the present. And so I want us to think about living in the light of eternity tonight. And we have three points to help us think through that as we work through this passage in Ecclesiastes 12. So firstly tonight, remembering God before it's too late. Remembering God before it's too late. Have a look again. The passage starts in verses 1 and 2. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. Before the days of trouble come and the years approach, when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark and the clouds return after the rain. Here the teacher, Ecclesiastes, often thought to be Solomon, uh, refers to God as our creator, the maker of everything. And then he speaks about this phrase in the days of our youth. And he wants to contrast it sharply with the days or years of pain which may follow in later life. Uh, He moves on to using this metaphor of a storm in life. And this image of a storm is something that grows. It's an overarching metaphor uh, in this first section of the chapter. The clouds in verse 2 return again. The image continues in an implicit way, an implied way in verses 3 and 4. The clouds return after the rain, which is a note of the recurring, I guess, impacts of old age. 
um, one of the physical problems that can beset us one after another. And so the picture there, one would hope that the sun might return after the rain, but no, the clouds, we're told, return after the rain. And it's really picturing more challenges, more trials coming one after another. And this is really the shadow of death that hangs over our lives. And it's something that the writer wants to sort of leave us sitting in uncomfortably with in this opening section, the first seven verses. It goes without saying that all of this is sort of confronting our frailty, the fleeting nature of our lives. But the discussion of ageing and ultimately death here is not meant to be negative and morbid. It's wanting to be realistic. It's wanting us to consider our lives in light of eternity and to make decisions in the present. And the metaphorical description here of the process of ageing rings true to us. Uh, We know that things grow darker as we get older in verse 2. That is, our eyesight gets weaker. Uh, We know that people become stooped in verse 3, or they lose their teeth or grinders. Uh, We know that our hearing diminishes in verse 4. He's alluding to all of these things in a poetic manner, so that the songs of birds grow fainter in verse 4 because our hearing is poorer. Or in verse 5, we become fearful sometimes in our old age because there's so much trouble in the world around us and we feel frail to approach it. The picture too that is described for us is familiar. And we know that the end of our earthly story, as the writer spells out in verses 5 to 7, is ultimately physical death. Notice again how he describes it there. Verse 5, Then people go to their eternal home, and mourners go about the streets. Remember him, that is God, before the silver cord is severed, and the golden bowl is broken, before the pitcher is shattered at the spring, and the wheel broken at the well. And dust returns to the ground that it came from, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. These words in verse 6 and 7 in particular are very poetic, but they're also quite blunt, aren't they, about death. Life is severed, it's shattered, it's broken. And the images that are being used in this little section are not entirely clear. They point to things that were commonplace in uh, the day of Solomon, less common for ourselves today. Uh, The silver cord and the bowl are thought to refer to the suspended oil lamp whose light may represent the spirit of a person that ultimately ascends to God in verse 7. The picture is really just talking about a common clay jar. It's representative of our bodies and talks about them breaking down, made from dust, they will return broken to the earth in verse 7. The interpretation, the general vibe of all of these images, though, is very clear to us. Individually, together, these images picture the end of our physical life. And this is clear, especially at the end of verse 5 and verse 7, where death is spoken more explicitly about. Our mourners wander about the street, the writer says, following the death of a person. Or in verse 7, the climax of this section, the body is buried in the ground, the person's spirit returns to God. It's interesting, commentators um, argue at times about whether the writer had a clear understanding or view of life after death, but the description in verse 7 is pretty clear and it fits with what the rest of the Bible outlines. And so in Genesis 2 verse 7 we read, The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the earth and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And therefore, as we die, our body returns to the, uh, to the dust, our, our breath or spirit returns to God. 
And of course, the picture is even stronger in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul speaks about this in many places. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, for example, he says, We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So given these metaphors and the difficulties of aging, of the fallenness of our world and the struggle ultimately that we'll all face, he's wanting to compare it to a storm. And it's a storm that slowly overtakes us. And therefore, he says, well, we need to remember our creator before that time's come. Verse 1 and verse 6, that same idea is repeated, remember your creator. But what does that mean? Because it's the point of the section, it's what he's wanting to hone in on. Well, he's saying, remember God before it's too late. Uh, before old age and death overtakes you like a storm. And the term remember here is really is referring to more than just thinking about God. We say, oh, yeah, I'll remember that there's a God or I'll think about a spiritual dimension to life before it's too late. No, it's more than that. The writer is saying pay attention to God, to his word, what he reveals to us in the Bible, that we might heed his word and respond to his offer of forgiveness and salvation. He has all authority as our creator. He calls us to live in relationship with him. Remember him. And that word remember not only relates to those people who have yet to respond to Jesus, but it relates to those who have already become Christians, who have placed their trust in the Lord Jesus. In that sense, remember is reinforcing the truth that we need to, as Christians, recall our relationship, continue to commit ourselves to following God and his Son, the Lord Jesus. And so the teacher's instruction is to do that before, he says three times in the passage, before time runs out. It's not something that we put off and wait until the last minute. And yet that is how a lot of Australians speak today, isn't it? If you ask them about whether they're religious or whether they have any spiritual belief, they'll often say no. Or if they're more open to considering that, they might say, oh, you know, one day I'll consider that. When I'm older, uh, when I've lived my life and done whatever I want to do, well, maybe then at the end of my life I'll consider whether there's a God and whether I need to actually have a relationship with him. Of course, there's something illogical about that, isn't it? I'll make peace with God on my deathbed. But what day will that be? You don't know how your days will unfold. You might be given 80 or 90 years, but maybe your life will be much shorter. You don't know when that time is coming. Putting something off and off and off that is so crucial that needs to be decided before it's too late is not a wise way to think about things. And that's the teacher's point in this opening section of Ecclesiastes. Remember your creator now. There's no time like the present. Later, maybe too late. Act now. It's an urgent call. The American author William Sarian uh, achieved great success in his field. He was a writer. Uh, he won the Pulitzer Prize in 1939 for his play, uh, The Time of Your Life. His father was actually a pastor who died when he was quite a young boy. Uh, he was a preacher. But Sarian didn't share his father's faith in God. He had no interest. He was quite atheistic throughout his life. And as he lay dying in his bed in a room in New York in 1981, uh, riddled with cancer, he reflected on his lack of preparation for that moment. And one evening he placed a phone call to Associated Press. 
And after identifying himself um, to the reporter, he posed a question. It was kind of a final word he wanted to give that might be written up in the paper after he passed away, which happened only a few days later. He said to the reporter, everybody has got to die, but I have always believed an exception would be made in my case. Now what? And he hung up the phone. Compare that with Magdalena. She was the daughter of Martin Luther, the famous German reformer who led the Reformation in the early 1500s. When she was 14 years old, she became quite ill. She lay uh, dying in their home. And Luther prayed, oh God, I love her so, but nevertheless, thy will be done. He was sharing with his daughter in the final days and he said to her at one point, Magdalena, would you rather be with me or would you rather go home to be with God in heaven? She answered him, Father, as God wills. Uh, Luther held her in his arms as she passed away and as they later laid her to rest, he said, Oh, my dear Magdalena, you will rise and shine like the stars in the sky. How strange to be so sorrowful and yet to know that all is at peace, that all is well. You see, she came to faith in her youth, before it was too late to remember God. And it's this hope that the Christian has in the hour of death that comes through Jesus through his resurrection from the dead on the third day, that he has the opportunity then to offer life to all those who trust in him because he has eternal life to give. And it's that hope which makes the Christian at peace as they face that moment in their lives. Everyone who places their trust in Jesus will one day then rise to eternal life with Christ their Saviour. But that brings me to a second point. Because the writer has a final word from verse 9 onwards in this short um, final chapter of the book. Second point, the final word. Notice again what he has to say from verses 9 and 11. Not only was the teacher wise, but also he imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The words of the wise are like goads. They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. The teacher concludes his writings here. Verse 80 ref, uh, repeats the phrase that he's used throughout the book, everything is temporary. But the final section from verse 9 to 14 is actually written by an editor. There's this extra voice that suddenly comes in and gives a summary of the book. A second voice who can refer to the teacher here in the third person and assess him to be wise. We're told that the teacher's purpose in doing this writing, including the book of Ecclesiastes, is to impart knowledge to the people. He's wanting to make others wise so they might know how to respond while they have opportunity. And we're told that he was a ponderer or literally a listener in the original Hebrew. He's a listener as well as a teacher. He was a student of life, if you like, somebody whose purpose was to draw out practical application about how to live so that he might then pass it on to others. But above all, in verse 10, we're told that his words are fitting and true. And the reason that his teachings are true, that they have a powerful impact, is given in verse 11. And it's not because... Oh, he's smart, and so you know we need to listen to this guru, but rather know that they are ultimately God's words. 
The phrase given by one shepherd in verse 11 is a reference to God. God is often referred throughout the Old Testament as the shepherd of his people Israel. For example, in Psalm 23, famously, King David says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. And notice that it's singular here, the one shepherd. It's a reference that's ultimately taken up later by Jesus, God's son. Uh, it's highlighted particularly in John 10, that famous passage where Jesus is referred to as the good shepherd. And he says in that passage, I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. And so the words of this teacher are powerful because they're ultimately God's words to us. They're like goads, he says. It's a, a vivid image. In Solomon's day, you would have a piece of wood with a metal shaft and a sharp wooden end on it that they would use as a prod uh, to prod cattle to move them onwards. And so really, Solomon here is saying that God's word act like this in terms of prodding cattle. It's a metaphor of the sharpness of God's word, sometimes painful, sometimes causing us to stop and reflect, but God's teaching, pointing us, instructing us, motivating us to live, to be people that respond to what God has done. And in verses 13 and 14, we've got the editor's summary of the teacher's writing. He says, ultimately, in the end, what all people are called to do is to fear God and to obey him. Now notice again in verse 13 what is stated there. Now that all has been heard, here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. And so here the conclusion of the book is that the appropriate human response is to actually listen to God and what he has to say. That God's commandments and all his instructions throughout the Bible are words of wisdom for us, like the book of Ecclesiastes, that are there for our benefit and good, that we might live in light of eternity, that we might respond rightly to our Creator. And this includes, of course, the teaching of Jesus, the Good Shepherd, who would come and fulfill this image, the one who came and laid down his life for us, paying for our sin, paying for our debt before God, and then being raised on the third day, having shown that his payment was effective that he can truly offer eternal life to those who place their trust in him. Here is true wisdom to come to Christ, the one who laid down his life for us. And so it does beg a final question then as we finish and conclude looking at this passage tonight. My final point is this, well, living in the light of eternity, what does that mean? How am I to live in the light of these truths in a way that responds to God's wisdom for me? Well, I think there are several applications that flow out of this passage uh, that we might learn from. But I think the first thing that the book of Ecclesiastes teaches, and it comes out even somewhat in this final passage, is that a short-sighted view of just living for this world is to miss the point. This is a book that challenges a materialistic, secular worldview. It's been said that Ecclesiastes is really like one long evangelistic tract and it's certainly one impact of the book. It demonstrates that it's futile for a person to keep just pursuing things in this life that are fleeting, that are not going to bring satisfaction, that we can't take with us in the short lives that we experience. In his book, Counterfeit Gods, uh, American pastor Tim Keller, who just passed away recently, 
uh, notes in that book how as early as the 1830s in the United States, observers were noticing how materialism was failing to satisfy Americans. Uh, when Alexis de Tocqueville um, toured America, came over from Europe, he wrote a famous observation uh, from the 1830s in that period. And he put it this way as he looked at American people. He said, there is a strange melancholy that haunts the inhabitants of this country in the midst of their abundance. Because he argued that Americans believed that prosperity could quench their yearning for happiness. It would be the solution. It would be the thing that would find hope in. But it was an illusion, he said. And of course, that same illusion has been sought after for the last you know, 100 years, 200 years. Australians could say the same thing today. Uh, we lead all the OECD measurements on any measurable economic data. Uh, we have a better style of living, higher income, ability to enjoy life, lots of leisure time, all of these things. And yet if you ask the average Australian, survey after survey, decade after decade, they'll say they're not happy with their lot. How can that be? If we're at the top of the pile and we're not happy, then how can anyone be happy? Could it be that happiness cannot be found in these things? Alexis de Tocqueville went on to tell Americans this, the incomplete joys of this world will never satisfy the human heart. The dis dissatisfaction shows itself in many ways, but it always leads to the same despair of not finding what is sought. We still haven't found what we're looking for, it seems. We can't pursue material things and build our entire lives on them. If we leave God out of our lives, there just won't be lasting satisfaction because we were designed, we were made to have a relationship with God. And if we ignore our creator God and seek fulfillment in this world, just pursuing our pleasures and wealth, then we'll come up empty-handed. And that's the writer of Ecclesiastes' point throughout the whole book. The temporary nature of our lives, which could end at any moment, makes a mockery of collecting a pile of things in this life. It makes a mockery of any sense of control that we have over what unfolds. God is the only one that is sovereign over the unfolding events of this world, which to us just seem chaotic and unpredictable for the most part. And as a result, we need to actually turn to our Creator, to thank him, to accept our lives as a gift from him and trust him to actually provide purpose and direction for them rather than blindly groping in the dark trying to find our own way. And so I want to say to you tonight, if you've been living for now or that's your plan for the next 20 or 50 years or however long God might give you, let me say that that is not going to find satisfaction for you. You've been living for those things, but you don't know Jesus, then please consider again. Consider his sacrificial death on your behalf. Only in knowing Jesus will you find the satisfaction that we search for in this life. But that brings me to a second application. What if you are a Christian here tonight? How do you live in the light of of eternity in the light of what the teacher in Ecclesiastes is saying. Well, notice how he finishes in verse 14. Ecclesiastes 12, here's the final sentence of the book. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. 
Christians know that they need to follow God's commands. As they seek to follow Jesus, we want to live for him. But we also need to realize that our life will be brought to account. Every person on the planet will be brought to account. And this point has been repeated a number of times in the book. It sometimes refers to judgments in the present, but it's very clearly in this last verse referring to the final judgment that is yet to come. There's a very wide focus here, every deed in this verse. And this is a teaching that's taken up in the New Testament many times. Uh, the Apostle Paul, the writer of the Hebrews. Hebrews 4 verse 13 says this, for example, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. This is an all-encompassing judgment, even of believers. We need to give an account of our stewardship of the life that God's given us, of the resources, the gifts, the things that he's blessed us with. How have we used them for his glory? And so it's something that we need to keep reflecting on as Christians today. I think sometimes Christians understand the idea of fearing God in a very diluted kind of way. Somehow it's just showing um, some kind of common courtesy or respect for God, that I'll, I'll give heed, and heed to God's word on a Sunday or maybe a Bible study during the week, but it doesn't really shape every moment of our lives. But it's very clear in Scripture that it's meant to, that we're meant to be following Jesus in every moment. It's a serious thing to come before the judge of all the earth. Now, Christians don't fear condemnation at the judgment. They've been forgiven through Jesus' death on the cross, which paid for their sin. We're not trying to earn our way through any kind of performance, but we do want to live in a way that responds to God's grace and love. We don't simply want to live selfish lives and ignore the great work that he has done bringing us into his family. And so it should stir us to live in the present for God and not ourselves. And so the New Testament is full of statements like, let us cleanse ourselves, perfecting holiness by fearing God. This serious commitment day by day to live for God, because one day soon we'll have to give an account. We want to be a blessing to others, not simply a selfish consideration of our own pleasure. Corrie ten Boom uh, is a famous Christian, uh, a Dutch Christian, who along with her father, um, protected a lot of Jews during World War II, hid them in their house uh, behind a secret compartment so that the Nazis couldn't find them as they searched for them. And she, of course, told the story of their uh, amazing involvement in World War II in her book, The Hiding Place. But amongst uh, what she wrote in that book, she said this, which was really insightful. The measure of a life, after all, is not its duration, but it's donation. How have we lived to serve God and others rather than ourselves? This is the question that Christians should ask. Well, third and final application of Ecclesiastes 12 is that what people are looking for is the abundant life, and that abundant life is found in Jesus. Notice again John 10, a separate section this time, where Jesus says, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief, he only comes to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Life to the full. It's a proverbial saying these days, isn't it? 
It's a way of insisting that there's only one basis for really fully enjoying and receiving in life what we're meant to receive. And of course, the Christian understanding of that is that that is a spiritual life that's full. We have received eternal life and that abundant life starts now. This eternal life begins as we follow Jesus in the present and will lead to being in his presence forever in glory. And this gives us a purpose-filled life now, a reason to be, a reason to serve and to give ourselves to God's work in this world, an abundant life, a full life. It's not about our comfort. We've been sold that lie for the last century in Australia and around the Western world that the golden life is to somehow sit on a beach somewhere as a millionaire and not have to do anything and just selfishly enjoy myself for the rest of the life. That would be the goal. God says, no, it doesn't work that way. True satisfaction comes in serving me, your creator, who one day you'll be with for eternity. This is what we were made to do. This is where we find our purpose. And so often when we hear those words as believers even, I think we can somehow feel that we're being duped, that, that it sounds hard, that this is some burden that I have to carry. Is that really what I've made for? Somehow this is hard to accept. Jesus says, nothing could be further from the truth. This is where you'll find joy. This is where it's at. Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30. Jesus, in this very self-revealing uh, speech about his own character and what he offers to those who might follow him, says this, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If we're wanting to find true joy in this life, if we want to find our purpose for being on this planet, then it's in Christ and the freedom that he gives us. We, we trust him. We place our faith in him. Jesus says, my yoke is easy. The burden of the gospel is light. And this freedom is therefore not a license to sin or to be selfish or to just go my own way, but it's a, a freedom to live under the authority of Jesus who will bring the joy that I'm looking for. And so we learn from him as we obey his teaching, as we follow him as his disciples. We're to submit our lives to him because that is where true joy and freedom is found. And the call from Ecclesiastes 12 is to start early to discover, to come to our Creator in our youth so that we might enjoy that life to the full for as many years as possible. And we're going to hear briefly soon about Harley and his journey and how he's come to the point of putting his trust in Jesus. And so my challenge to you tonight is if you don't know where you stand, if you're not sure that you have a right standing with God, if you haven't come to Jesus, the one who can offer you life to the full, let me urge you to consider again the one who laid down his life for you so that your debt might be paid before God, that you might be included in his family and have joy that starts now and goes forevermore. That is an offer worth considering. Let me pray for us. Oh Lord, we pray tonight that you might help us to live in the light of eternity. Help us not to be people who are short-sighted. Rather, help us to grasp what matters most. Help us not to be taken in by the trinkets and the shining lights of this world, but help us to see that you offer so much more, 
so much more in the gift of your Son who brings us life, abundant life, life to the full. Help us to come to him, the one who gave himself for us, for we pray it in his name. Amen.